Hi, welcome back to One Day You'll Thank Me. My name is Dr. Terry Egan, and I'm your host today. This is just a quick announcement to let you know that today's episode is an encore episode, which means that we are replaying one of our favorite episodes from a prior season. So tune in. Thank you. Welcome to season four of One Day You'll Thank Me, a podcast for smart parents. I'm Dr. Tara Egan. And I'm Anna. I'm a mom, a therapist, a parent coach, and an author. And I'm a daughter and a kick-ass high school student. Each week, we'll discuss a different parenting topic. And we'll interview some amazing guest experts. Our goal is to provide an interesting informational resource for busy parents. While also offering the perspective of a teen. Stay tuned, everyone. Boom. Hello, welcome back to One Day You'll Thank Me. My name is Dr. Tara Egan, and I am a therapist, a parent coach, an author, and a public speaker. And I appreciate all of you coming back week after week to listen to what we hope to be thoughtful parenting advice for those of you out there who are doing their best to raise kids who are productive and happy and healthy. So today we have a guest expert that I personally feel very invested in listening closely to. As most of you know, I have three teenagers in my family who have plans to go to college. And as a parent, especially a divorced parent who's remarried, it's really a struggle to think about how to go about financing college in a way that is responsible and hopefully low stress and allows my kids to access the schools and the education that they hope to. So with us today is Brad Baldridge. And he is a financial expert. He has been in the industry for over 25 years. He's a college funding specialist, and he's helped thousands of families plan and save for college with smart and proven strategies that save time and money and stress. So he is also a blogger and host of Taming the High Cost of College podcast. And he's been sharing his college planning insights with clients, subscribers, and listeners for nearly 20 years. So we're really pleased to have him here because this is just to get this information like straight from the horse's mouth is just going to be so valuable. He focuses on teaching parents the best ways to save and pay for college, including how to find the best schools or the right schools for your child, maximize financial aid and scholarships, avoid student loan debt, and make your children's college dreams come true without wiping out your finances or retirement. So I very much welcome you today to our show, Brad. Hi, it's great to be here. Well, as a parent, so I'm going to try not to make this interview about me. Um, it's <laughs> going to be it's going to be hard because I literally think about and kind of worry about you know making sure that I can give my kid everything that he and she want to do. And I'm, you know, I have a doctorate, like I did all of it. And I just paid off my student loans. I'm 45 years old, like last spring. And I actually, congratulations. Even, thank you. It was like, I felt like the, the pinnacle of grown up, and I'm aware that my student loan experience was vastly different than my children's might be given the state of our, you know, college financial experience right now. I mean, when I went to school, 
I graduated from high school in 1994. I went to a state school. My parents were a lower income bracket. I, I did qualify for things like Pell Grants. And I think I came away from my undergrad experience with maybe 25,000 in debt. And that included rooming and housing. Like I did financial aid for every single penny of it and got through four years at 25,000 and then proceeded through my master's and doctoral program. And I think I capped out at about 75. And I think for many kids, they're spending 75, I don't know what, first year, two years, maybe? Yeah, it could be the first year, often two years, easily in two years. Yeah. And so it's really scary to think about really qualified kids not having the same access to education that I did, because obviously it's been life-changing. Everything I do in my professional life relates back to me having the degrees and exposure and experience I've had. So I can't wait to get started. And maybe we should start with that. Maybe we should start with what can parents do when it comes to getting started with the process of planning for college? How do, how do they begin? So I think the first thing is really understand what you're up against and understand that college planning is going to be a process. It's not something that you you know, spend three or four hours on and then it's done. It's a process where early stage, you know, when your kids are young, you might set up a savings plan or you might, again, try and budget some of the bigger numbers in and just say, well, if we're going to pay for college for three kids, maybe we shouldn't buy that bigger house. Maybe we should save more for college because what I see a lot is when families roll into college, if they've learned how to spend every penny they make, at any income level, I've seen families earning 300000 say there's no way we can afford to pay anything for college because they learned how to spend every penny. And now what they need to put away for college is such a big number that it just shocks them. And of course, at any level, that's true. Just the way the pricing works, that college is always kind of at the limit of what a family can afford until you get to that. You know, again, if you're earning a million or more, you're, you're, you're probably fine. But anywhere less than that, for most families, it's, should I spend this kind of money on college? And are there ways to not spend this kind of money? So it can be very expensive. And just starting with, you know, what are we up against? You know, a typical state school is about 25000 average. Per year, right? Yes. And Illinois and New Jersey and a couple other states are a bit more expensive than that. And there's a few that are less expensive. But what that really means is that, you know, if your typical student can borrow 5,500, and that's the most the student's going to borrow in their name, typically, which means, and if they work hard, maybe they can earn $5,000 for the year, whether it's summers or weekends or whatever. So that means that parents are still on the hook for 15,000 at the low cost state school. And of course, you can go to more expensive schools than the low cost state school. And then maybe the parents will have to put in 20, 25, 30 per year per student, right? And it can add up very quickly. So what happens if you don't have the 25 in your savings account? Is it now the parents are in a position to take a parent-based loan? Correct. Exactly. So students can borrow up to 5,500 as a freshman under what we call the direct loan. And this is all undergrad rules. Once you're a grad student, the rules change. But the most a student can typically borrow is 5,500, then 6,500, and then 7,500 twice. So that add that all up, it's about 27,000. After that, the parents can borrow what the total cost of college is minus any other aid. So if your student got accepted to Harvard at 80,000 and they didn't get any aid, which is possible if you're high income, 
then you could borrow all 80,000. And again, I'm not saying you should borrow it. I'm saying you could borrow it. And so there's always that safety valve. And what I see a lot is families are stumbling through the process. They don't really understand how it works. And when they get to the end, they're in this tight situation where they have to make a decision quickly. Maybe the schools are more expensive than they would like, and they didn't do a good job of you know, vetting the schools, but it's too late now. They just, it's either cancel college or sign on the dotted line for this big loan. And most parents aren't willing to cancel college. No. So they do sign. And that's where I think a lot of families get in trouble is they, you know, they kind of stumble through things without understanding what the options are. And sometimes you have no choice but to spend relatively large amounts of money. But a lot of times you had a path that was probably going to be more cost effective. You just didn't know where it was and how to find it. And I think that's the big challenge around college planning is, as an example, the typical private school will offer on average about $20,000 off. So if you're, and of course they cost more, they start at 50 or 60 often, but if you can get on average 20,000 off, that means some families might get 30,000 off and some families might get 10,000 off. If you find the right school, often a private school will cost about the same as the local public school for the right student. So then you're in a position where you've equalized or whatever the pricing, and then maybe you can be more discerning about which college is truly the best fit for your child. Right. Because it's opened up the choice of them going private. Now, is it ever tricky where schools will offer a really competitive package first year and then second year will withdraw some of that age? So now your kids settled in into college, they've successfully completed a year, and now the price goes way up. Does that happen or is that me being paranoid? Generally not. I mean, most reputable colleges don't want to get the reputation of a bait and switch. I mean, okay. that gets out and they, and they, you know, it's a short-term gain and a long-term loss because people just stop applying and stop going there. Once it was relatively well known that, you know, they let you in at a low cost, but then they stick it to you. Well, again, so most colleges won't do that. Okay. But another frustration I think that people have is colleges really do only want to talk about the next year in general. So if you're in a situation where you know things are going to change, like the first year you have one student, but then you've got two or three students the next few years, you're likely to be eligible for more need-based aid. But colleges generally aren't going to say, well, let's talk about the junior and senior year when you're first applying. They really only want to talk about freshman year. Whereas, And in the junior and senior year, if you had two or three students, you know, now you've got a junior, a sophomore, and a freshman, let's say. Well, with three in school, you might qualify for a lot more aid. And it would be good to know that as you're doing your planning, because obviously, if you know you're going to have three in school, you know, the, the numbers are going to get big quickly. And you'd like to project out a four-year plan. But that's hard, typically, with, a, with a, most colleges. Something I help families with is we can kind of predict. Some colleges, again, have the reputation where they will meet your need. And if so, if you show higher financial need, you're going you know, almost for sure are going to get a higher scholarship. Other colleges are known for kind of capping it and saying, well, yes, you do need, you know, $50,000 at a school that costs 60. However, we don't have 50,000 to give you. The best we're going to do is 35, which still makes it a reasonable school. But you have to understand that then if you add more students and your need gets even higher, 
it doesn't matter because you're already at the cap of 35. So they're probably not going to do any better, even if things change and you technically need more based on the formula. So I have, you know, my biological daughter and then I have my stepdaughter and they're the same age, like almost to the day. So they're going to go to college the same year. And then two years later, my son's going to go to college. So if I just thinking about the two girls, if one of the girls gets accepted or is interested in a school that is a higher price point than the other sister, does that matter? Do they say, well, you're making the choice for kid A to go to a higher cost school and the other kids going to a state school or community college or whatever they decide. And so like, how is that our problem? Like, do they factor in the cost of the other sibling school? Generally not. It's just a a basic formula that says when you have one in school, this is the number. If you have two in school, this we take that number and divide by two. If you have three okay. in school, we divide by three. And therefore, it helps to have three in school. Now, if the three in school are at different price schools, well, they might have different experiences. Again, one might be at a place where the fact that they have a high need because of three students, one school might meet that need 100%. Another school might say, it doesn't matter. I mean, a typical state school, as an example, once you are above the Pell Grant and above, you know, once your income is around 60000 or more, you're not likely to get the highest need-based programs, which are the Pell Grant and the Supplemental Grant. So once you don't qualify for those, a lot of state schools, all they offer you is that $5,500 loan. That's all they have. Mm. So it really doesn't matter what your need is once you don't qualify for the Pell. If you needed $10,000, they are going to give you a $5,500 loan. If you needed $20,000, they are going to give you a $5,500 loan. And it's a loan. It's not a tuition break. It's a loan. Exactly. And if you don't need anything, you're still going to get the loan. So the $5,500 loan that we're talking about is available to all students, whether you show a need or you don't show a need. Now, if you show a need, the loan's slightly better, but that's you know a minor benefit. Saves you a couple thousand dollars over the life of the loan. So it's not a huge deal. But you know, again, you take everything you can get. You know, so going back to the idea of well, what should parents, you know, to get your head around college planning again? Most people pay for college with many different tools. They're going to get some tax breaks, and then they can use that to help pay for school. They're maybe they've got a saving or investing plan of some sort that they can use for college. They might get a little bit of need-based aid or merit aid. They might get scholarships from the colleges themselves. They might find outside scholarships. Mom and dad might kick in a little bit you know, from their ongoing earnings and just say, well, now that the student's not at home, you know, we can shut down cable TV and that saves us 100 bucks a month. So we'll put 100 bucks a month towards college. So you take all these different avenues and you kind of stack them together. And that's how most people deal, deal with college. We hear about that student that got the full ride. That doesn't happen very often, less than 1% probably. But many students get some sort of scholarship that takes, takes a chunk out of it. And then on top of that, maybe they earn some money and maybe mom and dad have saved some money. And again, get some tax breaks. We get uh, outside scholarships, whatever it might be. So there's lots of different ways. And for every family, it's a little different because you, you may show a high need or not have no need at all. You may have a rock star academic student, or you may have an average student or a below average student. And there's schools that have target the different types of students as well. So, you know, as an example, you take a student, I had a family where, you know, they were thinking about Notre Dame, which is obviously a very high end school. 
very competitive to get in and their student could just just barely squeaked in and got accepted but because he was essentially a below average student at Notre Dame they didn't offer him much as far as aid that same student applied to a couple other quote unquote lesser schools where he was the rock star and he got substantial scholarships so wow. he had a choice to make you know take the name brand high end school and pay a lot of money or you know pay tens of thousands less by going to schools that don't quite have the same cachet but they're still good schools and you're still going to get a good education and you know that's another challenge that families need to talk a little bit about is their education philosophy you know again because many times it doesn't really matter where you went to undergrad i mean when's the last time one of your clients said well you went to this undergrad so i'm not hiring you I mean, it just doesn't happen. So <laughs> I agree. And in, in my line of work, your credentials really matter. What's interesting is because I'm from New York State and I went to a state school, there's a lot of clients who've hired me because they are also Northerners who came to live in the South mm -hmm. and they're familiar with my school. And they'll be like, hey, I looked you up and I saw you're from Rochester, New York. I'm from Utica. I'm from Buffalo. And like they kind of connect with me on that. But no, it's not about, oh, you're going to, you know, a BS in psychology and education at Geneseo in New York State. So I agree with you there. And, and for many professions, including my own and potentially yours, it matters if the program, like if you get a licensure or certification, it matters if it's like a nationally approved certification. So if you right. get your, your licensure in therapy, if you go to a school that is, is credentialed for that licensure, you are credentialed. And it doesn't matter if you did it at Duke or you did it at, you know, University of Indiana and Pennsylvania. So I think that's a really good point. But I agree. I think that the culture within the family, I mean, there's some parents who are like, my kid's going to go to a Yale, a Princeton, you know, whatever. And that's fine. And then where there's other parents, and I think of myself as one of these where it really depends. It depends on, does it have the major? You know, does it feel good to you? Is it competitive financially? You know, we don't want you to sink yourself into this hole. I don't know if, if you have this experience, but on Facebook, you know, I've been seeing a lot of content where somebody says, you know, I have my master's degree. I took $72,000 in loans. Over the past 15 years, I've paid a total amount of $86,000 and I still owe another $90,000. Mm -hmm. So they're like, you know, tripling or something, you know, the amount they're paying back is triple the loan they took. And that, you know, as a parent is so frightening to think about my kid taking a loan, making the payments, you know, dedicating part of their income every month to paying it back responsibly. And having it just be such a horrible deal as far as nobody wants to pay triple for something because they had to take a loan. All right, for sure. And there's a combination of issues there. One is when you go on to grad school, the game changes where they don't offer nearly as much free money type aid. They don't offer scholarships and grants and that kind of stuff. They offer large loans. And because you're going to grad school, theoretically, you're going to have a career that pays well enough that you can pay back those loans. At least that's been the theory so far when they kind of put the loan programs in, in place. Now, unfortunately, there's a lot of people that will go and get a master's degree right out of undergrad and not really realize that they're signing their life away. 
And those are the kids that we hear about, well, I owe $100,000. And it turns out that my grad degree is not marketable very well. And, you know, my job pays me 75000 a year. And in my neighborhood, that barely is living wage. So I'm making very minimum payments on these loans or I'm missing a loan here and there. And all of a sudden, late fees and all that stuff is piling up. And I just can't, I can't get ahead. I mean, that's a reality. So, and again, a lot of parents, then, you know, I can hear people already saying, well, you should always, you know, focus on a good paying job if you're going to spend that kind of money. And, you know, you should be looking at the engineering and nursing and all these majors that where the math works really well, because if you can start at a reasonable salary, et cetera, et cetera, it, it works well. But the reality of it is not everybody is cut out for those paths. And some people do need to take that English major or whatever it is. Yeah, we still need teachers and teachers, you know, in a lot of places have master's degrees. Yes. And what are we going to do if we have everybody not doing teaching? <laughs> you know? Right, exactly. And there's a supply and demand issue where if every teacher out there has a master's and there's, a, there's lots of applicants for every job, well, then that's the challenge, right? Is there's just too many, too many teachers out there pursuing too few jobs and then the pay doesn't go up, right? But the pay will go up if there's, you know, and that's, I think, the challenge is, and then there's always, you know, a lot of people that do that, what I call the hard left turn in life, where they went to school, they studied this, they worked in that industry, you know, like, I, I have an engineering degree, I worked in engineering for five years and switched career paths into the financial industry, and haven't looked back. And I don't regret the engineering degree, because it taught me a lot of critical thinking, and obviously math and how to solve problems. And I just apply that now to the financial world instead, where, again, I enjoy the complexity of college. Um, I find the challenge interesting. Many families don't, but that's the reality is there's, you know, back when you and I were in college, it wasn't unusual to run into that kid that was already at the college for six years because they changed their major once or twice and they couldn't figure out what they wanted to be when they grow up. Mm -hmm. So they used the college experience as a way to explore. Well, that's a very expensive way to do it these days. Yes. So now there's a lot more pressure, I think, to have your life figured out at 17. And if you're, and again, I have a son that's in college and he's, he's in engineering and it's always been engineering pretty much. So he's always been the math and science guy. So he had a clear path and that's great, but my next two aren't so clear. And that's just the reality of families as many students are undecided or not real committed. And then what do you do about that? Do you go undecided? Do you take a gap year? There's no right or wrong there either. And there's actually, you know, professionals out there that can help you, you know, with what do you want to be when you grow up and at various levels, right? Where it's one-on-one -on -one consulting or it's take a course and get some, get some help. Yeah. But because it's such a challenging thing and it costs so much, it may be worth spending whatever, you know, whether it's the course or the fees to try and get it right the first time. We had a college admissions counselor on our podcast a couple times. Her name is Michelle McEnany. And she talks about how we live in a world where high schoolers or kids going into college are, you know, studying for jobs that may not yet exist. And so to say, okay, well, when I grow up, I'm going to be this. And, it, you know, and it's something that is 
just were on the cusp of that field. And, you know, so many of the fields that are related, of course, to technology, medicine, you know, there, there isn't a name for that job yet. And so that can be very like a reality that kids are struggling with. You know, it's not just like, oh, I'm just, I'm going to go for nursing or teaching or become a psychologist or whatever it is. And I see now that I have a, a children who are headed towards college and I look up different majors or I see what schools offer, which majors. And I'm like, I don't even know what this means. I've never heard of this major and it doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, this could be amazing. Or is this a major that it would be difficult to have it translate to an actual paying job? And as a parent, I think, how do I, how do I help guide my kid with this? Because, you know, I definitely have kids I could see doing something that is on the forefront of progress and is, mm-hmm. you know, I think of my brother, he's a senior engineer. He's brilliant. I mean, the stuff he works on now never existed three years ago. So he's constantly having to learn and grow and, and these kids are going to have to also. And so it's, I have so much sympathy because it's like, you need to, you need to pick something. You can't just waste your time. But at the same time, like, how can you have any idea what to pick if you're not exposed to things in school? It's a real pickle. Right. Exactly. And I was at a conference a couple of years ago and some of the leading thinkers around higher education are talking about, well, one model that might be coming is like just-in-time learning. Instead of spending four years learning a bunch of stuff, which may or may not be relevant to what you're doing, maybe you sign up for that four-year degree where, but you go for two years, you go to some places and work a little bit, and then you go back with some experience and do another year or two to kind of close it out. But now you know a little bit more about what you're interested in. And so you pick a different, you know, there's various forks you could choose from as an example. You know, you could go into basic engineering and then pick your final choice after you've worked in industry a little bit and said, you know, I'm really interested in electricity and batteries, or I'm really interested in chemicals, or I'm really interested in, you know, building assembly plants or whatever, right? It, where it could be drastically different. And you actually have experience before you you do that. So for listeners out there that have very young kids, you know, I think, and I've been saying this for years and I've been wrong so far, but I think education is due for a reform similar to the news and publishing industry, right? Where, you know, the internet came along and kind of changed the way it works. I think, you know, education is, and it has changed a lot as an example for adult learners, the typical you know, 25 or 30 year old that's saying, I'm going to go back and finish my degree or start my degree or whatever. They have a lot of options, not just the four year, get on the campus and and study. But a lot of parents, that's what they want for their kids. That's one of the reasons that I think college hasn't changed much is parents are very willing to do what it takes to get their kids the college experience. You know, we did it and we loved it. We hope that our kids get the same shot. and if it gets more expensive, we're just going to figure it out and pay for it. And that, and colleges has got to take advantage of that, right? Where they have realized that they can raise the price. And there's a number of parents out there that are just going to figure it out and pay whatever it costs. I think that some parents are tempted to kind of dip into their retirement savings. And which is very scary to me that that could be a choice that my husband and I are faced with. And parents are worried about that. What happens if college? wipes out their retirement or delays their retirement how can how can families balance college saving and retirement do you have any thoughts about that oh i have a lot of thoughts about that 
one thing that most people need to realize is college planning is retirement planning because college is so expensive. It can very much decimate a typical retirement. And the other thing I hear a lot from parents is I don't want college to mess up retirement. So then when I ask the next, the follow-up question to that, which is, are you on track for retirement? I don't know. It's like, okay. So kind of a, now it's two situations we have to figure out. First is what is it going to take to be on track for retirement so that we know what the commitment there is and then figure out how college is going to work with that. And hopefully we can afford to do both. You know, if you get in a situation where you say, you know, based on planning, it looks like you need to save about another thousand a month in order to pay for your own retirement. So maybe we got to jump up on your 401k or Roth IRA or something. And in addition to that, you're going to need about a thousand a month plus what you've saved so far for college. It's great when families say, oh, 2000 a month. Great. Let's make it happen. Most families say, what do you mean? An extra 2000 a month on top of what we're already doing? It's like, yes. Well, we don't have 2000. Well, that's when you start, you know, again, sharpening the pencil and saying, well, can we adjust retirement a little bit? Can we adjust college a little bit? You know, are there other avenues to, you know, have our cake and eat it too? But that's, you know, that leads into just general financial planning. We're all trying to fit as much as we can into whatever we're going to earn over our lifetime, right? And, you know, some families, they can say, well, I can't increase my income. So that might be a better strategy than trying to cut expenses. Other times it's, you know, again, I'm teacher as an example, right? Your salary is a salary. It's not, you, maybe you can do a side hustle or something, but in a lot of cases, you, well, not much we can do on the income side, but let's focus on efficient planning and making sure everything is working as hard as it can. Because if you do that, a lot of times you can squeeze one more thing and whether it's college or vacations or something else, if you do everything wisely. And that's, I think the challenge for most families is that's a lot of work and a lot of understanding that and a lot of expertise that most families don't have. And even if you do, dedicating that, you know, if you have the aptitude to do it, dedicating the time and getting it done when you've got teenagers running around the house is just crazy, right? And there's just, you're a lot of families are at their peak earning years, about the time that they have kids in college or getting close to it. And they're also at their peak busy years and their peak stress years, where again, chasing the teenagers around and showing up at their events and maintaining, you know, they got a promotion at work. Now they're a manager and they've got more responsibility at work. That's, and now we're also trying to say, we got to figure out college. It's like, it just gets to be a challenge for many families. And that's unfortunately the reality. So, yeah, well, I'm a big fan of parents realizing where their strengths are and, you know, accessing resources in the community that are going to, first of all, be a successful like sort of intervention, right? I mean, to get in front of an expert, you know, to recognize that they're like their stress, their time, that emotional energy, that's a, a resource that you might be spreading too thin for your family life. I just, for me, I can't imagine pedaling faster to try to get my kids the, you know, access to college and then feeling like I did it wrong because I was reluctant to to work with a, with a specialist. Obviously, you want to find somebody who's good fit and that you trust and is truly competent. And that can be intimidating to to, to start a relationship like that with somebody. But mm-hmm. 
I don't know. I, I, I tell parents like there's certain things that you cannot hire out. You can't hire out being a mom or a dad. You can't hire out math tutoring. You know, like you don't have to be the one who tries to help your kid through algebra two. You don't have to be the one who's trying to keep teach your kid to be a better basketball player or, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And, and like there, to me, there's, there should be an appropriate allocation of resources and like everybody should sort of be working at their highest competency level. For me, I know that that would not include some of those that you're talking about, you know, and I know not everybody has the same mindset or some people view it as like things are stretched so tight here that I can't imagine now hiring an additional professional who is deservedly going to be paid when maybe I should be saving that money to put back into the college fund. And every family has got to make their own decision with regards to that. But I, th- I think that this is a very complicated issue that kind of the mainstream parent, like you said, who's handling all those things is not necessarily going to be able to allocate the right time and attention towards it. Right. And I have the advantage of I will often save a lot more than I cost because people don't understand all the strategies out there. So if I can find two or three strategies, you know, that save a couple thousand dollars, I more than pay for myself. And so that's, you know, that's the good, the, the good thing about it is, you know, parents are, again, most parents aren't going to say, you know, college is just unattainable. It's canceled, especially at the middle income and up, you know, they're going to figure it out or they're just going to sign on the dotted line for that crazy loan or whatever it is. So again, if we can do it more efficiently, again, a lot of times, you know, I save what I cost and then some, and if I can't, well, then we're probably not a good fit. I can just say that up front. You know, it's like, Mm -hmm. if you're doing something very basic, you know, where my student is living at home and going to the local community college, it's the only choice in town. So we're not, we're not negotiating. We're not going to visit a lot of schools and stuff because this is the only option. Well, well, then most of the heavy lifting is done and the costs are relatively low. Maybe I can't help. But for, again, for the typical family that's saying, maybe we'll go private if we can find one that's reasonable compared to the state schools. And maybe we'll even go out of state or I've got that far and wide kid that, you know, they're talking about California and East Coast and Texas. And, and oh my God, what are we going to do? And where do we visit? And how do we, you know, where do we start? I mean, that, certainly that is where I can add a lot of value. Mm, that's good to know. I know that you offer resources on your website and your website, I do want to mention is www.tamingthehighcostofcollege.com. And you were speaking with me earlier about a resource you have called College Planning Jumpstart which it sounds like that is a course that parents can access and it can give them some preliminary information to consider when it comes to starting this planning process. Is there any more details you want to share with our audience about that resource in particular? Sure. So again, it's a course, the goal of the course is to give you the kind of a basic framework, a path to run on. So we start with Again, estimating what your typical state school is going to be. So it's kind of your low cost option, you know, kind of clarifying what that is and what the numbers are so that when you look at another school that comes in, you have a relative, you know, you look at the local private school and they say they're 50,000 and you know, your low cost option is 20. Well, now you obviously can decide, well, am I going to apply to that school or not? Or are we willing to consider it? Or if they come in very close, right? If your low cost option is 20 and the private school comes in at 23, 
you say, oh, well, you know, for 3000, if it's a good fit, you know, most people are going to say if we're in for 20, what's, you know, going to 23 is a slight stretch, but if it's a better deal, if there's something we like about that school that makes it worth it, we'll do that. Right. I mean, that's the way we, most families work is, you know, we don't drive the absolute cheapest car we could possibly find. We try and find a car that meets our needs at a reasonable value, whatever that means, right? So some of us drive minivans, some of us need four-door, some of us still have that sport coupe because that's, you know, our needs are, we got to go fast, whatever. But <laughs> so that's the challenge. I think that a lot of families are, you know, there is no right or wrong on how you spend your money. I always talk about when, you know, if you're going to give up the lake home so you can spend crazy amounts of money on college, I don't think that's, you know, that's your choice. That seems fine. If you're going to decimate your retirement or you're going to, you know, do things like that, take on huge loans or bury your student debt just to go to that particular school, that's a different question. And then, of course, family, there's many families where, you know, we're going to have to take some loans just to make the state school a reality. So, and, you know, and I see it across the board where, you know, there is a and better ways to do the same thing often where it's like, well, this is our goal. If we can do it this way instead of that way, it, it turns out to be a little bit cheaper. And then sometimes it's, uh, you know, maybe we need to refocus our path. And that's what the course is about is, will you get need-based aid? Will you get merit aid? How do they work? How do you visit schools? How do you figure out what a school is actually going to cost? A lot of colleges offer these high price tags, but then many of them also offer you to say things like, well, everybody gets a scholarship or nearly everybody gets a scholarship. So if it lists at 60, but most people pay 40 or 30, you know, that's what you need to know early on so that you don't cross it off the list saying like, you know, there's no way we're paying 60. It's like, well, 60 wasn't a real number ever. Yeah. It was just the, you know, just the list price. And if everybody gets a scholarship for 20 or 25 or 30, well then, you know, obviously 30 or which should be what you you'd be using. So that's the goal of the course. And I also have a free resource called the scholarship guide for busy parents that talks about the different resources. And then we have the, your free college money report, which is another great resource where you can literally put in your financial information and a little bit about your academics of your student and three colleges that you think you're interested in. And it'll give you an estimate of what those colleges will come in at. It'll try and give you a good estimate on need-based aid, on merit aid, and give you like a net price for that, again, based on your family situation, your income, the number of students you have in school, all that type of thing. Is it ever not appropriate for parents to fill out the FAFSA? I ask this because like in my family, we have, you know, me and my ex who are parenting our two children, but then we're both remarried and both of our partners also have incomes. You know, all four of us are working parents. And when I think of all four of us, I can't imagine that we're going to qualify for some sort of aid. But I also know that it may be difficult for me to access financial information from my ex, you know, given that it's going to feel like his private information and, and same with me. Like, how do you navigate that? Like in a divorce where you might have some parents, you know, in many states, parents are not obligated. Like there isn't a judge out there who's saying to a parent, or a parenting team, like you guys have to manage this. Like that kid's 18. And if one parent is like, I'm out financially, 
even though they may bring a couple hundred thousand dollars to the table as far as what is reported on a financial aid form, you know, but they legally don't have to contribute anything, even though their income, I imagine, is going to be considered when it comes to looking at the resources that that student has. I mean, I know that's kind of complicated, but like any top tips for that? I know that's honestly could be a whole separate episode and it might be appropriate to have you come back and talk about some of the nuanced factors with families who have divorced parents. But if you if you have any overriding thoughts you could share, I'd appreciate it. Right. Yeah. Before I dive into divorce, I just want to talk about it from a broad perspective. You know, college planning, there's things that everybody has to do. You know, everybody's going to visit, everybody's going to fill out financial aid, everybody's going to do all these things. Then in addition to that, you might be a family where you have extra things to do. So if you're a divorced family, you've got extra planning and family politics to deal with and that type of thing. If you've got a student athlete, well, the athletic system is another mm-hmm. you know, complication. If you own, a, own and operate a business or some of those things, you, there's more complexity because you have control over your salary, as an example. My goodness, you're stressing me out because my ex owns a business. I own a business. We have a kid who could could explore athletic opportunities. Right, exactly. All those things are extra things on top of the basics. Now, if you immediately say, well, my kid's not athletic, well, then great. Now there's a whole area that you can just ignore because you know it just doesn't apply. You know, so again, to get your head around that, if you've got that far and wide kid, that means it's more complicated. If you've got multiple kids at the same time, that means it's going to be more complicated. But now specifically your divorce question, Generally, the FAFSA only asks about what we call the primary parent and if that parent is remarried. So right now, it's wherever the student spent the most in the previous 12 months. So if placement is exactly 50-50, well, I mean, even if it's not, even if placement isn't that, you actually, it's a planning opportunity. You can say, I want the student to stay with this parent one day more than that parent in the previous. And it's what actually happened. It has nothing to do with what the agreement said. So a lot of times a 17-year-old isn't necessarily doing what the agreement says anymore because they've got, a, they've got a job or something. And so it's just more convenient for them to be at dad's house or mom's house because it's close to the job on the days they work. So they don't, you know, and nobody went and renegotiated. It has to be reflected in the paperwork or it doesn't have no, to be? No, it does not. It's what okay. actually happened. Okay. So wherever the student was in the previous, and again, where placement is close to 50-50, you know, you just say, well... We're going to intentionally make it go one way or the other. Mm-hmm. That's really super helpful information. Holy moly, you've earned your keep today just on that. Right, exactly. <laughs> now, from there, if that spouse or that parent is remarried, the new spouse, unfortunately, is going to be included in the mix. Even if, like, my spouse has four children. Yeah, well, their four children would also be in the mix potentially. Again, depending okay. on what the where those children land. And if so if if you're you know, so you have a blended family. So if you and your husband are the primary parent of all the kids going to college, well then you have multiple kids in school, even though they're not all each biologically you know, any one related of to me. Right. Right, exactly. So you know, you might do that on purpose where you bring them all into your household because they happen to be all going at the same time. And based on, but that's the calculation you do, right? Is you could say, well, what if they, you know, what if your kids went with your ex and what if his kids went with his ex? Is that a better deal or a worse deal? 
assuming it's even a, a reality, right? I mean, again, some families that it's a reality, you're cooperating. Sometimes, you know, mom or dad is just unavailable out of state or something where it's just not realistic that they're even an option. Um, I've been involved in what we call collaborative divorce here in the Milwaukee area. So I meet a lot of families that are contemplating divorce in the middle of divorce. And maybe they already have, they have kids in high school or kids already in college, and they're trying to figure out how that all works, right? Whether, you know, as you're divorcing, as an example, when you say, we're now we're going to do just the primary parent. Well, what if you just are recently divorced? So the tax return you have from two years mm -hmm. ago is a joint return, but you're not supposed to include your ex's income. Well, that's where I help families. As an example, you kind of recreate a mock tax return as if you were single back then and break it out and try and come up with a, an accurate representation of what it would have been had you been divorced then, even though you weren't then. So the rules for financial aid, as an example, are different than the rules around taxes. And just because for tax purposes, you know, I hear this a lot. Well, I claim them on my taxes, so therefore I'm the primary. No, that's not how it works right now. That's really good to know because like my ex claims one kid, I claim the other kid. But if one of us makes substantially more, it would make sense to establish one of us as a primary parent, regardless of what the paperwork says and regardless of who claims whom on each tax. Like, I mean, I know there's parents out there who are monstrous about, you know, doing, but it's in the higher, it's in both parents' best interest to have your child mm -hmm. qualify for more aid. So, I mean, you'd have to have a really difficult co-parenting situation to to have a parent deny that parent the extra time with the kid to be able to establish one parent as a primary parent. Right. And it really is where they're sleeping. And again, the, the typical busy teenager is not spending time with either parent to be right. quite blunt. Right. But they do sleep I mean, there's, someplace. There's, yeah, well, exactly. It's, right. They're sleeping at my house. It's not like yeah. I hang out with them. They come, they, you know, they go to school, they go with their friends, they go to work, they grab some food and they sleep here. I see them for 20 minutes. <laughs> Is that, you know, so yes, you're giving up 20 minutes, but maybe there's a way you can balance that out. But I mean, we, again, we digress here a little bit. I know, the, I know we could go down this spiral as I ask these really self-serving questions throughout this whole interview. But I got to give you the rest of this. Yeah. Before we go on, I got to give you the rest of the story because that's the FAFSA. Okay. In addition to that, there's about 300 schools that also do the CSS profile. They're typically the high-end schools, the Ivy League and Stanford and Notre Dame. And they ask a lot more questions and they often will ask about both parents and all new spouses. Okay. So now when we're doing the planning, you might need to find a school that will or will not ask about both parents because of the situation and where, where the numbers land. Where you say, well, this school is just FAFSA, so they'll never hear about the X, and therefore they're going to work out really well, whereas this school over here is going to ask about the X, and then that's going to blow things up. So that's the challenge of that planning is it, it can get relatively complex. It's ideal if the parents get along and are willing to, you know, just at least share their financial strategy. Right. Yeah. Right. They don't, you know share with a neutral party what the financial aid information is, you know, again, I've done that a few times where I can, I don't necessarily share the information, you know, with the parents, but I just say, well, these are the two options. And it's, you know, and you have some inkling typically of what your ex's 
Yeah. Income yeah, I mean, is, you know, you know, you know, their job and their lifestyle probably. Right. But I think in my situation, someone like you could be extremely helpful because as co-parents, we could collaborate with you, provide you with that information. So you'd be able to help us make an informed decision. And we wouldn't necessarily have to do as much collaborating because you would be that neutral third party, correct? Right now. And again, I'm not a professional in the getting in the middle of a ugly situation. That's, you know, but when parents are cooperating, that's great. And the other thing I often do is I, you know, again, most parents aren't canceling college. So oftentimes I, there's a parent that's holding the college bag is what I call it, where they know that if college is going to have it, they're going to have to take care of it because their ex is already tapped out for whatever reason. So they know they're holding the bag. They know their ex isn't going to help. You know, maybe the ex will at least fill out a financial aid form if it's required, but they know they're not going to get much money or they're not going to help with the visits or they're not going to, you know, they kind of know where they stand. Either way, you got to do the planning, right? So sometimes I'm working with just one parent giving them strategies to work around the obstinate other parent. Sometimes I'm working collaboratively where both parents are very much involved and wanting to make it as best they can for their student at the lowest cost. And in either situation, you know, again, it's got to get done, whether, like I said, whether it's the, the X is completely, you know, a typical thing that I've heard a lot is, well, I've been paying tons of money in child support for many years where did all that money go? Why isn't that being used for college? And the other side of the fence is, well, he or she makes a lot of money. They can afford to pay for it. Why don't they pay for college? Yeah. And nobody's right there. I mean, that's the, you know, the bottom line is in a divorce situation, expenses went up dramatically with two households typically, and nobody Legal feels fees. like they're living. Right. Yeah. Nobody's feels like they increase their lifestyle by getting a divorce. Yeah. And it's painful for everyone. And that's one. And then the last thought I have is if you're not yet divorced is talk with your attorney a little bit. And I don't know what the right answers are right now, but I think a lot of attorneys advice around college essentially is we're going to ignore it. Yeah. And what they're really saying is we're going to fight about that later. Yeah. Well, and it's hard when your kid's seven years old to think, well, what's their journey going to be 10, 11 years from now? I mean, there's some kids who don't go to college and that's a really good choice for them, or, you know, they're not as academically inclined. And, you know, even though my ex and I both have advanced degrees, and I think, I think we share the, the goal of having our kids go to college. I know that I very much view not going to college for many kids as being truly a viable, you know, option. Mm -hmm. But I think one thing you have in your, to your advantage being a numbers person is there is an element in which the numbers are the numbers. Like we got data here as far as what your W-2 says or what assets you have that could be considered in this process versus, you know, the type of work I do with co-parents is, you know, obviously much more emotionally based. So, so I think there, for some parents, that's an advantage of like, they don't necessarily want their private financial circumstances to be conveyed to their ex but they are invested right. in having their child have access to resources. And of course, understanding the need to be like truthful about all of those. So I love the fact that this service exists. I very much appreciate you being here today. And I know we're just at the tip of the iceberg, you know, to think about all the variables. And, and so thinking about our conversation, I think of places parents can get started, 
you know, un- having parents understand like the sticker price or the price that's listed on the website or in the college planning book may not be the price that ultimately you're being asked to pay. There can be a difference between either or either state schools or kind of less prestigious schools and higher tiered, I guess, schools as far as what they're expecting of you and your financial contribution. Mm-hmm. It sounds like there's multiple sources for parents to consider when it comes to financing. And you know, you mentioned some of them, tax breaks, ways that you can invest your money, merit aid, outside scholarships, parents using incoming income, kids contributing some from their, their works resources. Those are just some of the things you've offered. So I think that as our audience is, is listening today, keep in mind, you know, Brad is here for parents across all states. You can visit him at his website, which is www.teamingthehighcostofcollege.com. You can listen to his podcast. If you go to his website, you can fill out a contact form. You can send an email and just start the process of getting initial information about whether a service like his service can provide the support you need and take some of the stress off your plate. He does offer some courses that you can take on an individual basis that you can access through his website. You know, one of them I mentioned earlier, College Planning Jumpstart. And right now I feel like you have an introductory price on your website. Is that right, Brad? Right. I mean, right now the course is $199 and you know, I intend to build it out, make it stronger, and of course raise the price as it gets better, but that's where we are right now. Okay. Is there any last thoughts you want to share with our audience today? Yeah. Get started sooner than you feel like you need to. I've had many parents tell me we started this too late. I've never had anyone say, you know, I started this too early. So get started, especially if you've got a freshman, sophomore, junior, you know, start the process, listen to the podcast while you're driving or exercising or something, just to start learning all the different stuff. And again, maybe you just learn it well enough so that you can hire someone to help you with it. Maybe you learn enough, you can do it yourself, but someone's got it. You got to learn what you're up against. And, you know, freshman and sophomore year is not too early. And I know for many families, it's like, we're just getting acclimated to high school when you want to talk about college. Unfortunately, yes. You know, especially, you know, because by junior year, you absolutely must be working at it hard. Okay. I have two juniors. So knock, knock. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been incredibly helpful. Hopefully our audience does not feel that I was too self-serving and asking questions that related to my specific circumstances. But as always, I appreciate you, Brad, as our guest expert being here today. And I appreciate the audience who tunes in every week. If you want to know more about this topic, if you have a question, you can go to Brad's website, you know, specifically, or you can stop by my website, which is www.drtaraegan.com and shoot me an email and let me know if there's something else we want to, that you'd be interested in us expanding on. Because as always, we want to make sure that we are supplying resources that are really relatable and helpful to the parents out there who are listening. So thank you, Brad, for being here with us today. Thank you for having me.